God sent his only son that we might live in and through him. But whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did, passing from death to life as we love one another, not being led astray, but remaining in his light where there is no darkness at all. For the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. So let us love one another without fear. For perfect love drives out fear. And if we love one another, God's love is made complete in us. Believe in the name of his son and love one another. Dear children, let us not only love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. He watched in horror as these kids wandered the streets of his beloved city of New York City. From toddler to teenagers, their, their lot was set. He knew what would happen to them. They would be sex trafficked. He knew that they would probably die on the streets or at least, if they're lucky, make it to jail. So he had to do something. He had to do something to thwart this evil. The year was 1853. The man's name was Pastor Charles Loring Brace. And as a young pastor, he decided to start an organization to fight children homelessness. And so he started this organization called the Children's Aid Society. And what this organization did is they procured a bunch of safe houses. These safe houses would actually become orphanages, and it would be a place where kids could come. They could not only have good meals, but they could also have a safe place to, to sleep and a safe place to be. They would get vocational training. They would get schooling. And so you could see that it would make an impact, but the problem is... Too many kids, not enough orphanages. So his team got together and said, how can we solve this? They started thinking, well, in the countryside, there are a lot of people who are yearning to have kids, but they can't. And so they started working with local churches and city governments in the countryside, in, in New York, in Connecticut, in Pennsylvania. And as they started placing kids in these families, kids were being adopted, but there was still a problem. Too many kids, not enough families. So they were thinking, how could we do this? The, a lot of people were moving out west, so they thought, well, let's get them out west and let's work with the local churches, let's work with the local governments. And in 1854, this whole concept called orphan trains came to fruition. Now, I will say that it was fraught with abuse, but here's the beautiful thing about it. First of all, it would be the foundation for our foster care system. Secondly, hundreds upon thousands of kids over multiple decades would be placed in homes, and there were so many success stories, all because one man, one person said, enough. I see evil happening, and I got to do something about it. And that begs a question for you, begs a question for me. Have you ever considered that the antidote to evil is not more hate or more evil, but that the antidote to evil is simply love. But love comes with a cost. 
such as what we're going to talk about today. If you get anything at all out of today's teaching, get this. True love demands a sacrifice. True love demands a sacrifice. And the perfect example of that true love is Jesus. Well, God's got a lot to say about that as we hit into yet another week of this incredible series called Go in Love, Be a Light. It's in this series in which we're pulling apart this amazing letter called 1 John. Today we're going to be in 1 John chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 11 to 18. So turn to 1 John 3. Let me set the scene for what's going on. Go back to 33 AD. Jesus is crucified. He's crucified for our sins. He dies. He's buried. He's resurrected. He ascends to the right hand of the Father. He pours out his Holy Spirit, giving us a way now to not only be made right with God, but to walk with him and experience him 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Our story picks up about 60 years later. The last disciple standing of the original 12 is John. Remember Peter, James, and John. He was part of, of Jesus' tight circle. And so he's writing in his late 80s or early 90s as a pastor who's been there, done that. He's writing from a town called Ephesus, not only to all the churches he's pastored, but he's writing to you and he's writing to me. He's pushed hard to encourage all these people and to encourage us, saying that we need to walk in the light rather than walking in the darkness, that we can have fellowship with God through Jesus. But he also admonishes. He says, be careful because this thing called sin is a real thing, that, that there are going to be false teachers that come into the church to divide the church. They'll say things like, oh, Jesus isn't really the Messiah, and, and he didn't really step down from his throne. There's no such thing as the incarnation. We talked about that two weeks ago and how important that is in our faith. And so he pins this letter. Right now in this passage that we're going to be looking at today, it is the center of the letter. Before that, he's talking so much about how God is light and we're called to walk in the light. Now he shifts gears and for the rest of the letter, he's really going to be honing in on this thing called love, that God is love. And in today's teaching, what you're going to see is that love is an action that demands a sacrifice. You're going to see that love is a command, not an option. That it draws us closer to God. And the perfect example of love is Jesus. That when we receive him into our hearts, Jesus, through the power of his gospel, starts doing something supernatural inside of us. And what he does in us is he gives us the ability to love the unlovable, to forgive the unforgivable, to walk away from our past and walk into the future with him as our guide. He gives us the ability to say, Jesus bigger, me smaller. That's what we're going to be talking about today. So with that, two pastors I leaned into to put this together, uh, Dr. Chuck Swindoll, as well as Pastor Chris Brown down at North Coast Church in San Diego. Uh, remember our main thought as we kick off verse 11 here, that true love demands a sacrifice. Here we go. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. So he repeats this phrase again. He said it several times in the letter. This is the message we've heard from the beginning. Now remember, John has been walking with Jesus. He walked with Jesus in the dirt for three years. He heard Jesus say this over and over, that we need to love one another. Okay, but, but here's the thing about that word love. 
It's kind of a crazy word in English because it could mean a bunch of different things. I mean, I, I love Jesus. I love my wife. I love my kids. I love my grandkids. I love my church. I love classic rock music. I love country western music, but only the pop, not the twang. Don't be hating. I love apple fritters. Can I get an amen and hallelujah? I love the, the you know, like a, a maple bar with bacon on it. Man, yeah, I love that. I don't like fish. If fish didn't taste like fish, I, I, I'd like fish. I'd love fish, but I don't like fish. But here's the thing. I also love the New Testament because it's written in Koine Greek, and this, the, the original language it's written in, that word love, can be expressed a whole bunch of different ways. See, there are different types of love. There, there's eros love. That's an erotic love. It's a sexual love. There's philea love, it's like the Philadelphia, it's where we get the word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, so that's more of a friendship love. There's sturge love, that's a, a family type of love, but the love that John and that Jesus talks about is agape love. And agape love is an unconditional love, and it's so hard for us to agape, because it means loving people right where they are, warts and all. But that's what John, through Jesus, tells us here. We've got to love well. We've got to love one another. So our man John is a man of contrast. In all five of his letters, different, different contrasts. He's always doing contrasts. And what we're going to see now is he's going to be talking. He starts off talking about love. Then he's going to give us an example now of how not to do it. He's going to give us an example of hate. Verse 12. He says, do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brother's actions were righteous. So John's audience would understand what he's talking about here when he talks about Cain. Many of you know what he's talking about. Many of you attending online, you know what he's talking about, but many of you don't. So what we need to do, because it's so important in today's teaching, is we need to look at this story. Go back to Genesis chapter 4. We're going to go through it very briefly. It ties directly into our story. So Adam and Eve are kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And they start having kids. They have a lot of kids. Two of their kids, two of their boys are Cain and Abel. Cain's the older brother. Abel's the younger brother. Now, we don't know if they were twins. Cain came out first. Abel followed him. We don't know. We don't know if there were years separating him. It just doesn't matter. They're two brothers, Cain and Abel. And there's an issue. There's a big issue. So with that, let's look at this. Genesis chapter 4, verses 2 through 5. Now, Abel, that's Cain's brother, he kept the flock. So Abel's a shepherd, and Cain worked the soil. That means Cain's a farmer. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. Remember that, that's important. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his, his flock. That's important. And the reason why? The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he didn't look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. So names mean a lot in the Old Testament. And there are a lot of different translations for Cain and Abel, but it's important in our story. The word Cain, the name Cain, can mean a bunch of things. What it really dials down to is it's someone who possesses a lot. He who possesses a lot. And then you get to this guy named Abel. And it sucks to be him. His name means meaningless vanity, empty, someone who has nothing. 
So when people see them, when they say hi to Cain, they're saying, hey, God gives you, God gives you favor. Hey, you, you have a whole lot of stuff. And you can see that that would swell Cain's head. And then you got this guy, Abel. Hey, meaningless, how's it going? So it's a snapshot into their character. Abel is known as a very humble man. Cain is known as a very prideful man. <clears throat> now, Abel was a shepherd. Cain was a farmer. That did not mean that Cain didn't have animals. Speculation here. But Cain and Abel most likely were raised that they had to do sacrifices to God, that they had to give offerings to God with whatever they gained, with whatever they did. But those sacrifices had to be blood sacrifices. Why is that? Go back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, they're looking great. Eve's got beautiful hair. Adam's got rock-hard abs. They're buck-necked and they don't even know it. And then they biff it. And when they sin, all hell breaks loose in the world. And when that happens, they realize that they are naked and they're ashamed. And when that happens, God doesn't schwack them. He conducts a sacrifice of animals, not to be gross and weird, but to cover them. There's a blood sacrifice and God takes that skin and covers their sin, covers their shame, covers their guilt. When God does that, that sacrifices out of, out of his love. So guarantee that Adam and Eve would tell them about that all the time. That one thing, that one event in the Garden of Eden is so important because it points to Jesus and the cross. If you go to the Mosaic Law and you see all those crazy animal sacrifices, all of that not only points forward to Jesus, it points backward to that time in the garden where God sacrificed animals to cover sin. So with that, Abel sacrifices the best of his flock, and it's an animal blood sacrifice, and God approves of that. But Cain, who had animals, he gives a fruit salad to God, and God doesn't approve of that. And so Cain's all upset because Abel gets the, front, the thumbs up from God, and Cain doesn't. Cain's got an issue. It's a pride issue. It's a sin issue. It's actually a love issue, but I'm getting ahead of myself. God's going to warn Cain with these words, verses six and seven. Remember, Cain was boohooing about this, and so God's going to warn him. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what's right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what's right, look at this, look at this. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you, you must master it. So God calls out Cain and says, you got a pride issue, which is an anger issue, which is really a love issue, and you better get a hold of it or it's going it, it, to kill you. Don't miss this. God, out of his sovereignty, is not bound by time. He knows everything that's going to happen. God, out of his love, doesn't take away Cain's free will. Because if you take away his free will, that's forced love, and forced love isn't love at all. So God, out of his mercy, warns Cain, don't do this. You, you better get your sin under control. So Cain's got a choice. God bigger, me smaller, or me bigger, forget about God. Let's look at what he chooses, verse 8. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, hey, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. So Cain puts himself ahead of God. Spoiler alert, he's, God's going to know what happens, and God doesn't schwack 
Cain. What God does with Cain is he actually banishes him from his family, but sends him out with a hedge of protection so he couldn't be harmed by others and animals and things of that nature. So why does John bring up this story in this passage? And it's a great question. He does because all of us have this evil that can lurk in our hearts. I've said over and over again that that all of us are one, two, or three bad decisions, three bad relationships from having ethical or moral failures or doing something really, really evil and bad. And what we see in this, in the story of Cain, is that the first battle of evil is in your heart. The first battle of evil is in your and my hearts, our hearts. That's where the first battle of evil is, but there's good news. Through Jesus and through his gospel, he permeates that. He gives us the ability now to overcome evil, to say no to those things that can take us down and yes to to Jesus and what's better. Jesus through the gospel transforms our life. Jesus through the gospel heals us. Years ago, I heard a pastor say these words. He says, if you don't heal what hurt you, you will bleed on people who didn't cut you. Let me say that again. If you don't heal what hurt you, you will bleed on people who didn't cut you. Now think about that. God gives us incredible godly men and women in our lives to help heal our hearts, and that's amazing. But at the end of the day, people don't heal our hearts. Only Jesus can heal our hearts through the transformation of our hearts, through his message, his Holy Spirit, and the gospel. It's all about Jesus healing our hearts. So John kicks it off saying, we got to love well. We're called to love one another. And then he says, he says, Don't be hating like Cain. He continues on with this theme of hate, but now it's with a twist. Look at verse 13. John continues. He says, do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. Okay, wait, what, John? Come on, time out. If the world hates us, if we are loving well as a church, if we're loving well as people, the world's going to love us, right? Remember what John said. This is the message you have heard from the beginning. From the beginning, that's the time when John was walking the dirt with Jesus. And Jesus consistently said, we've got to love one another. But wait a second, he brings it back to these words that John records in John chapter 15. Go to John chapter, gospel, the gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Go back to John chapter 15 and let's look at verses 18 and 19. Jesus is in the upper room. He's hours before being crushed on the cross for our sin. Jesus says these words. If the world hates you, circle that word world. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Wait, come on, Jesus. Hashtag better than Gandhi, that's Jesus. No. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you're not of the world, you're different is what he's saying. But but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Jesus is saying, guys, be ready for it. The world's going to hate you. Okay, this word for world, we've, we've talked about it before up here, but here's a good refresher. The word is cosmos. It can mean a bunch of different things. In this context, it's everything that's antithetical to Jesus. Everything that's against God. A system that is set up against God. That's the world. And the world is going to hate you and me. And before we start going, the end is near, we're all doomed. Remember Jesus' words in that same upper room, just before he says this. 
Now go back to John chapter 13. Let's look at verses 34 and 35. Jesus says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. He's telling us that the antidote to evil is not more hate. It's not more evil. The antidote to evil is simply love. But he says, here's the deal. The world's going to know that you're my disciples by the way you love, but get ready for it. There's going to be haters. He's calling us not to be world pleasers. He's talking us to be great lovers of him, his word, and his people, and others, to love others well. Let me give you an example of a church that, that has loved well uh, in, in history. Let's look at the church of Antioch. You can look at it on your own, Acts chapters 11, 12, and 13. Look at it on your own. But let me kind of walk through what happens there. In Acts chapter 11, it's a, a town called Antioch, and it's the first place where Christians were actually called Christians. The word Christian actually means little Christs. And in Antioch, the, the Christ followers there were being Jesus with skin, and they were doing amazing things. What a lot of people don't know about the town of Antioch is that it was a segregated city. It had walls all over the city. The city was segregated by economic class, so you had upper, middle, and lower class. You would never cross into those different areas. But it was also segregated by race and ethnicities. And so what happened is these Christ followers started popping up all over the place and they started loving well. And something supernatural was happening in that city, all because these Christ followers were loving well. I always say, anytime I get a chance to, to weave this into the story, this is an ex a perfect example about how Jesus loves all people and that racism is a sin. And we see that no matter what the race, no matter what the ethnicity, whatever the economic class, Jesus overcame all of that, and we're called to love well, and that's what this church did. So they're loving extremely well. They're tearing down walls in the society, and you would think everybody loved them, and a lot of people did. It's kind of cool because if you go to Acts chapter 13, there's a list of all the different pastors who were in that church, all of them from different races and economic background. Let me... Let me Give you just a few of them. There was Simeon the Niger. He was black. He was from Africa. A guy named Lucius the Cyrene. He was a brown guy from Tunisia. This guy, Menaean. Menaean was from European royalty. He was a white guy and extremely rich. Then you had, of course, Paul, the apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus. He was a Hebrew. You had Barnabas, who was a, a Caucasian Greek. Walls were being torn down, and you would think that everybody loved them. But remember, we go back to John's words, do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you, even if you're loving well. Because what happened in that city and what happened in that region and in that time, there would be this dictator by the name of Nero who would come to power. He would kill hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of Christ followers. So John says, don't be surprised if the world hates you. But then Jesus says, hey, the world's going to know you're my disciples by the way you love. Whenever I fly, I don't like turbulence. I, I just don't. I, I get airsick. I love jumping out of airplanes, but I don't like barfing on airplanes. And what I sense right now is some turbulence on this flight calls to, called today's sermon. So let's kind of smooth the flight out. Let's go back to where we came from. Let's do a quick review. John kicks it off saying, with the words of Jesus, we got to love well. Then he steals uh, uh, the lyrics from, from Taylor Swift's playbook, haters going to hate, hate, hate. Don't be hating like Cain. 
And then he says, remember that, that the, the first battle of evil is in our hearts and we got to pay attention to that and that the antidote to evil, it's love. And now through Jesus, we see that we're called to love well. All right. The flight is smooth. Let's continue on at 30,000 feet. Let's, now we see another contrast. Let's go back to 1 John 3, verses 14 and 15. He's going to do another contrast, and the contrast here is death and life. Look what he says. He says, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers, our brothers and sisters. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. So John goes for the jugular here. He says, hey, if you call yourself a Christ follower, you need to love well. Basically saying there's two types of people out there. There's lovers, there's haters. There's lovers, there's haters, there's nothing in between. Either you love well as a Christ follower or you hate. You can't be in the middle. Now remember too that John... When he preached, he would be preaching against false teachers, false teachers who were part of the Gnostics. Pastor Bob talked about this in week one. Gnostics were all about knowledge that you could know God, but your actions didn't really count. So John says, no, that's not true. In fact, let's go back to verses 14 and 15, because what he does, he says, okay, you guys think you know? We know. We know. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother like Cain, remember that's why that story is so important in this passage. You hate your brother like Cain. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. He says, listen, we're different. As Christ followers, we are different. The way we live our lives, loving God greatly, loving other, others dearly, we are different and we can't be like Cain. And we've got a perfect example of that. What's that example? I'm glad you asked. Verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. So what? And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. John 3.16 is the most quoted uh, Bible verse out there. It's the pop, most popular verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. And then you've got 1 John 3.16 that's so cool because it, it takes it a bit further. Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. We got to love. We got to do that agape love. We love them to the nth degree, no matter who they are, no matter what's going on in their lives. Boogers hanging out of the nose. We don't care. One eyebrow, no neck. We don't care. We're going to love you well. We're called to love to the nth degree. And what I think John is saying is here is that God is calling us to the sound of the guns. God's calling us to the sound of the guns. What do I mean by that? When I was a lieutenant in the army, I was a brand new platoon leader. My company commander called me into the office and he said, Lieutenant McCormick, here's the bottom line. You, are, you have been given by the grace of God national treasure. That national treasures are, are U.S. Army soldiers. And your job is to lead them well, lead them with courage, lead them with character and integrity and take them to the sound of the guns. The sound of the guns is where the battle's raging. It's where not only your courage will be tested, it's where you're needed most. And church, I would argue that John is saying we are called to the sound of the guns. What are those guns? The guns of abuse. 
where people are physically, emotionally, spiritually, and sexually abused. We're called to the sound of those guns. They're screaming for help. God calls us to the sound of the guns. The guns of shattered hopes and dreams. Shattered hopes and dreams where people are broken and just looking for something or someone to save them. And God's calling us to them to share the amazing message of Jesus. Bad things made good through Jesus who loves us. It's the transforming power of the gospel. And God is calling us to go to the sound of the guns. It's the sound of the guns, the guns of poverty where so many people are living in the tyranny of the moment. And not only do they need a handout, they need a hand up. God is calling us to the sound of the guns. The guns of tyranny, where people who were once free are being oppressed. And God's calling us to sound of those guns. It's what we see right now, what's happening in Eastern Europe. And it's heartbreaking to see. Here at Cornwall Church, we put our money where our mouth is. And each year we take an Easter offering. And with that Easter offering, we give 100% of it back to the community, locally, regionally, and internationally. And we have given, with this past year's Easter offering, we've given significantly to vetted agencies that are working with humanitarian relief with all the horrors that are going on over there. We're going to the sound of the guns. I had a friend of mine uh, this morning, he's uh, a Russian man who, who lives uh, locally here in Whatcom County, and he says, Kip, I'm heartbroken. My kids are getting picked on at school because they're Russian. They're getting bullied now because of this. Folks, any bullying is wrong. We've got to go to the sound of the guns. It doesn't matter what's happening. We've got to go to the sound of those guns. The story of Cain and Abel, one of the things about that is it's about vengeance, and vengeance is never justice because vengeance is always fueled by hatred. We got to go to the sound of the guns because the antidote to evil is not more evil and more hatred. The antidote to evil is love. Church, God is calling us to the sound of the guns. What sound do you hear? What action will you take? Let me give you an example of a man who did this well, actually a man and his wife who did this well. His name is David Eubank. Uh, David and I actually served in the same unit when I was in special forces. I didn't know him. It was a very large unit. And, and uh, come to find out, I wish I would have because this guy's an amazing man. He was raised in Thailand of all places. His dad was a missionary in Thailand. And, and so he was, his dad and mom were missionaries. And so he was raised in Thailand, but he realized he didn't want to be a missionary. He wanted to be a soldier. So when he graduated high school, he, he, he uh, went to Texas A&M University and joined their Army ROTC program. After about four years, he graduated, he got his officer's commission, became an infantry officer, an Army Ranger, and then a Special Forces officer. He served with distinction for 10 years. During that time, God started moving in his heart that he needed to go back into the missionary field. Now, he argued with God, and last time I checked, that really doesn't work. And so he said, yep, this is what I'm supposed to do. So he gets out of the army after serving, you know, so well in special forces, and he meets this beautiful lady named Karen. Karen captivates his heart. She loves Jesus. They get married. And his dad says, hey, I don't know if you're up on current events, but where you grew up right next door is this place called Burma, and there's a really bad civil war going on there right now. The Burmese 
military is, is doing war crimes that would make Hitler go, ooh, wow, that's bad. He said it's an ugly place. There's, there's internationally displaced persons. We call them IDPs. They're refugees. People who are displaced by war, they're in the thick of the jungle. We need you. They need you. What do you think? So he and Karen prayed about it, and they said yes to the dress. They sold everything, and they moved to the jungles of Burma. Now, they didn't move to an apartment. They're living in the jungles of Burma. Now, I've been in the, the jungles of Thailand and northwest Thailand, and they're pretty ugly. They're nothing compared to the jungles of Burma. And when they get over there, he's thinking, okay, I'm supposed to be a special forces officer. I'm supposed to be putting together an insurgency to fight the bad guys. And God's immediately saying, no, that's not what you're here for. You're here to point people to Jesus. You're here for reconciliation. You're here to show forgiveness. You're here to teach them how to, how to survive in the jungle because they can't. They're all going to die without that. You're going to teach them medical and civil affairs types th type things. You're going to teach them how to do reconnaissance to stay away from all of these bad guys. And you're going to point them and point them and point them some more to Jesus. So they do that. After a while, they form an organization called the Free Burma Rangers. And what the Free Burma Rangers do is they start doing all those things that God laid on his heart and lives start changing. They also start getting cameras and they start recording all of the atrocities that are, ha that are happening because the world really doesn't know what's happening. And so they get those, uh, those videos out to all the different international news agencies and now all of a sudden the world's seeing the horrible things that are happening. David and Karen have three kids, and they raise them in Burma, again, in the middle of the jungles. At one point, they say to their fellow free Burma rangers and all of these refugees, they say these words, we can't make this right, the, the atrocities that are going on. I know that God doesn't like what's happened here. Here's everything we have. Look at this. If we run, we run with you. If we stay, we stay with you. How can we serve you? And they would stay. And they would raise their kids over there. And here's what's crazy about this story. People in the Burmese military would, would defect from the Burmese military and join the free Burma Rangers. And they would hear about this incredible God named Jesus who will forgive any sin, no matter hor how horrible it is. And they're being baptized. And they're growing in Christ. And there's reconciliation going on. All because a man and a woman said yes to the dress but I'm not done. Because now the story gets interesting. A, a handful of years ago, they got a phone call from someone in Iraq in a town called Mosul that was under control, the, the control of ISIS, a terrorist organization. They said, hey, we hear all these great things that God's doing through you in Burma. Can you bring some of your free Burma Rangers over here and, and start doing that in Mosul, Iraq? We need help. It's ugly. And so he and his wife and his kids and, and a couple of the, the Burmese Rangers, they sit around and they pray. And they remember that, that, that town Mosul. Well, in the Old Testament, the town was Nineveh. They remember that God called Jonah to Nineveh, and he said no and ended up smelling like fish. Not a good thing. So they said, we're in. Let's go. So they go to Mosul. And in Mosul, they do the exact same things, medical civil affairs projects. They point these Muslim people to Jesus, and lives are changing. Back to 1 John 3.16, it ties into the story. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. So in Mosul, 
David's leading his teams, and, and one day they're going down a road, and they see this little girl on the side of the road. She's hiding under her dead mom's skirt. There are dead children around. There are dead people around. Isis is using this little girl as, a, uh, as, uh, as bait. And so anyone who would try to save them, they're shot, and most are killed. So he sees what's going on. He calls a friend of his in the Iraqi military saying, I need help. They're like, we're already tied down fighting ISIS over here. I'll give you one tank. And they show up with a tank. And this tank starts going down the road. And they get about 10 yards from this little girl who, remember, she's two years old. And she's hiding under her dead mom's skirt. He sees what's happening. And he's like, no, this can't happen. We're not going to let this happen. So he decides to pray. It's like, God, I don't know what to do. I know if I step out there, I'm going to be killed. What do I do? And immediately, God places on his heart the words of Jesus. Greater love has none than this, than he lays, lays down his life for another. So he's like, all right. He takes a deep breath. He runs out to grab this girl. Again, the tank can't get over there because of the terrain. And he grabs her, he picks her up, and he gets shot in the arm as he comes back. Hey, it's a mere flesh wound. And he gets back, and he just, he's like, guys, there are more wounded people there. So he keeps going out, and his team, they keep going out, and they, they move back that 40 yards now to their safe area. And as they move that 40 yards back, more people who need saving. I share all of that story for this. One man, one woman, the sound of the guns. That's where they went. In the past 20 plus years, free Burma Rangers in Iraq, Syria, in uh, Burma, and now in Ukraine, they've saved 1.5 million people or provided help for 1.5 million people. And I look at that and I go, I can't do that. I can't. There's no way I can do anything like that. Well, if that's you, if you're feeling the same way, fret not. Verse 17. If anyone has material possessions, that's all of us, by the way. If you're living in a, in a homeless shelter right now, you have more possessions than most people in the third world. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother, and some translations say brother or sister, in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Do not miss this. Verse 16 is plural. He says brothers or, and sisters. Verse 17 it's the power of one, brother or sister. He says, you got the grease. You got what it takes. And what John does is some really good Christian guilting here. He, he says, how can you call yourself a Christ follower if, you got if you've got material goods and you stroll by someone in need? Not 10 people, not 100 people. Not a million and a half people if you see one person in need, because it's all about our actions. He wraps up the passage with this, verse 18. Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and truth. Actions and truth. Our, our actions matter in the eyes of God. Our actions matter. And Jesus gives us that example. He kicks off the passage saying, love well, don't be like Cain. And you got bookends in this passage because you got Cain right here. Haters going to hate, hate, hate. And then you got Jesus. And we've got to love well. We love like Jesus. And as I wrap up today, I want to give you a challenge. 
And it's a solid, very, uh, uh, very tangible challenge for each one of us. And here's the challenge. One person, one need, one act. One person, not 10, not 100, not a million and a half. One person, one need. Not every need, because not every need is a calling. One act. What if, folks, what if every morning we woke up and said, Jesus, I love you. Thank you for letting me wake up on this side of the dirt again. And Jesus, here's the thing. I just need you to show me today. Show me one person I can help. If it's in my family, in my school, if it's in my office, if it's at the store, I don't know one person. Show me their need and help me do that one act. Folks, if we did that, that would change our lives, change our community, would change this church. One person, one need, one act. All of us doing these acts of love because here's the thing about love. It's an action that demands a sacrifice. It's command, not an option. It draws us closer to God. The perfect example of love is Jesus. And Jesus, through the power of his Holy Spirit and the power of the gospel, transforms our heart now to where our outward stuff that we do is showing inner transformation with Jesus. Transformation that happens day in and day out when we say, Jesus bigger, me smaller. We do that all the way till the time we hit eternity and choke on our chicken bone and show up in front of him and hear those great, amazing words, well done, good and faithful servant. Church, the guns are sounding and God is calling us to action. Will you answer that call?